Amen. Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 tonight as uh, we last week finished our study in Genesis and tonight we'll consider in light of Christmas the birth of our Lord Jesus. God invites us to find joy in the birth of a baby. As an angel will declare, I bring you good news of a great joy. And so we want to consider this event that brings delight and do so from a very familiar passage. You may have to steel yourself in resolution to hear it fresh uh, from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20, the story of God becoming human to bring humanity back to God. Hear then God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we pray that you would speak to us tonight. We ask that you would give us hearing ears and seeing eyes and that we might even behold the glory of the Lord Jesus. You would draw our hearts to him. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In December 2011, an astonishing event occurred on a basketball court between North Carolina and Texas. The North Carolina head coach, Roy Williams, did something entirely unexpected. See, Williams is one of the best college coaches there has ever been. He has uh, the sixth all-time best winning percentage of college coaches. He's taken seven Final Four uh, teams uh, in his careers at Kansas and North Carolina. That's the fourth best all-time in college history. He's one of only two coaches in NCAA history to have led two different programs to at least three Final Four each. He's already been inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's still coaching. So there he was, coaching his players, and during a timeout, in his suit and tie, he grabbed a towel and bent down on the floor and began to wipe the sweat of his players off the floor. Now look, there are ball boys for that job. There are people at the end of the bench who don't play for that job. But to see the head coach, multi-millionaire, successful man do it, stunned the crowd. There was a, a, a light murmuring at first. And as more and more people saw what he was doing, that, that got louder and louder until the, the, the stadium was filled with applause. The arena was filled with applause at the coach. One so high, stooping, so low in service of others. It was extraordinary. It delighted those who saw it. And we, my friends, have something far better and a much greater reason for joy with the birth of this baby because the highest stooped lowest, not for his own sake, but for your good. I want you to consider that tonight. C.S. Lewis says this would be like, it'd be far more than like, but it'd be like uh, becoming a slug and wandering out onto a garden path after a rain. What a drop in status it would be for us. But all the more to have somebody come along and crush you, which is what happened to the Lord Jesus. So, this is designed for our joy, God becoming man to bring mankind back to God. And, and uh, it's not hard to understand those words. He is God. He is, the text says, verse 11, he is Christ the Lord. The Lord there means he is God. And we're, we will sing of that momentarily after the sermon when we sing uh, the, the Christmas carol, Come All Ye Faithful. In the second stanza, you have it. Before you, we'll sing, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, 
begotten, not created. True God. But he's also a man. He becomes a man. He was already God. And then he added to himself humanity. And so we're going to sing of that in, in or we just sang of that in Hark the Herald, stanza two. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, the enfleshed deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And so here he is, God and Lord, and he becomes the servant of all. And I want you to think about how this passage shows us we should have joy in him in three ways. I want you to think about this, that there's joy in God's sovereign reliability. There's joy in Christ's sympathy And there's joy in Christ's sin-bearing. Those three things tonight. In the first place, there's joy to be found, friends, in God's sovereign reliability. What do I mean by that? Well, God did what he had long said he would do. He sent the Messiah, and it happened according to Scripture, and it fulfilled multiple prophecies, as we've already read one tonight. I just, I just want to remind you of some of the other prophetic announcements of the Messiah who is to come that have been fulfilled in Jesus. We have been studying this last semester, Genesis 1-6, to the first promise God gives of a coming Messiah He's called the Redeemer, is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve are still in the garden after they've thumbed their nose at God, turned their back on God, and rebelled against God. And God immediately, he's going to deal with their sin, but he's going to send the promised one, this male child who will come from the seed of the woman and crush the serpent's head, Genesis three fifteen. And then we see that the Savior is going to be human, not angelic. And this is Jesus who has come. And then we find the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the coming of Christ, speaking of a birth, uh, a birth of a child to a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is what happened. And then we see that this Savior is going to be a male child and ruler, a king. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and though he was not a king of the kingdoms of this world, he is a far greater king, king of kings, of a kingdom which is not of this world. And finally, in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, I think we read this last week, it's told to us that this child will be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, 400 years before Jesus, when it says, but you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so we find that God has done just exactly 
what he said he would do. He has fulfilled prophecy in the coming of Jesus. And how did he do it? Well, it happened, the text says, go back to Luke 2. It happened in the days of Caesar Augustus when he decreed that all the world should be registered, should be taxed. This is all the world that he has his hands on in authority over. And Luke, the historian here, is paying very careful attention to how all this plays out. He roots the birth of Jesus in history. For Luke, this is no myth. This isn't just some story a bunch of people made up. It's not a symbolic fable. Uh, but, but it's actually something that as a historical context, it's a real event in real space and time. It really happened, he says. Caesar Augustus called for a census in all the Roman-occupied world. We know that kings like Caesar would do that for basically one of two reasons. Uh, on the one hand, they want your money. Uh, they, they, want us, they want to know how many people there are so that they can tax you appropriately and get all that they need. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the other reason is so they get, get their hands on the young men. So that, so that they could know who was in their kingdom when it was time to, to draft men for military service. And so he sends out this decree that everybody should be registered. And one of the things that Luke tells us in verses 1 through 5 is that God is sovereignly in charge of all the details, even the smallest of details, of the birth of Christ. I mean, think of it. Here's Mary... A young teenage girl, as best we know, married to a a young man named Joseph, and he's a carpenter from a place called Nazareth. They are not a rich family. They are a poor family. But we know that Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says it's going to be out of Bethlehem where the Messiah is going to be born. Not um, Not in Nazareth, where he's from. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. So you immediately wonder to yourself, Lord, how are you going to get this poor family when she's probably eight or nine months pregnant? How are you going to get Joseph to take her from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, how do you do it? You make the sovereign king of the earth in that place declare it must be so. God uses the most powerful person in that part of the world and the most powerful kingdom in that part of the world as a pawn to do his will, to get what needs to be done, done. And so Caesar appoints a registration and Quirinius, who's the governor of Syria, the area which is controlling what was once upon a time Israel, puts into place this registration. And so Joseph takes Mary from Nazareth Because he's of the lineage of David and he has to go to his family's hometown. And so he goes back to Bethlehem. Now listen, as far as the Roman Empire goes, Caesar Augustus is doing exactly what Caesar Augustus wants to do. But what he doesn't realize is he's actually doing the bidding of a far greater king, the king of kings. And so so Luke is telling you here, that, that uh, God is sovereign 
and reliable in, both the, in, in all the details, in the timing of the birth, in the place of the birth. All these details come together just exactly as, as it has to happen for Jesus to be born. And that, friends, is an important lesson for us because we need to remember that, that God is sovereign in the life of his own beloved son, but he is no less sovereign in our lives. That God, who cares for his own beloved son, is also caring for us in all the details of our lives, no less than in the life of his own beloved son. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how Jesus put it? He says that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your father in heaven. He's that concerned about every detail of your life, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Do you remember David the psalmist prays in Psalm 139? He prays, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. These are great and precious promises. God is supremely in charge. He is on his throne. He gets Mary and Joseph just exactly where they need to be to fulfill his word so he can be true to his word and to accomplish our salvation. God is absolutely sovereignly reliable. And that is such a delight to those who believe, friends. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, had a uh, anxious friend named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip was always worrying about something. And so Luther said to his, front, uh, said to his friend, Cease, Philip from trying to govern the world. You don't need to govern the world. God is on his throne. And it may seem to you like nobody is running the world. It may seem to you that tyrants are running the world. But I assure you, this passage reminds us that the king of kings is running the world. And so we can depend on him and our souls can rest in him. There's joy, friends, in the birth of Jesus because it demonstrates God is God. God can be trusted to do what God says he will do. And that's the first thing. There's also joy, friends, here in Christ's sympathy. What does it mean, friends, that there is a child born who is, as the angels say, born to you this day, verse 11, a Savior who is Christ the Lord? It means that he was truly human. Uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon put it this way, he's infinite, yet an infant, eternal, yet born of a woman, almighty, and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting a universe, and yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms, heir of all things, yet the carpenter's despised son. He became, friends, truly human. It's not that he appeared to be that way, but he wasn't, but he became touchable, visible, woundable flesh and blood. And so in innumerable ways, friends, the fact that God became man, became a child, means he can sympathize with you. 
He gets what it is to be you. For instance, he can sympathize with children. Jesus understands you. He was a firstborn son. He was the oldest child. He undoubtedly faced the rivalry and jealousy of his brothers and siblings. He he and his own family, as he grew up, bore the weight of responsibility as the firstborn son uh, in that family. Yet he wasn't taken seriously by his own family. Late in life, his family thought he had gone mad, crazy, out of his mind, they said of him. Jesus can sympathize with children. He can sympathize with those who are misunderstood. He was a sinless child, yet undoubtedly, Fred's disciplined by his own parents, who are sinful parents, and undoubtedly at times for the faults of his own siblings and not his own faults, as, as it's the experience of every parent misunderstanding situations, walking in on, on uh, sibling fights and reading the situation one, de- one way and finding out weeks later you read that situation all wrong and yet disciplining on account of it. Undoubtedly, Jesus faced that kind of misunderstanding in his own home. He was never arrogant in any way about being sinless. But can you imagine what it'd be like to be disciplined by the parents you yourself created as the God of the universe. And when Jesus, uh, and so he suffered at the hands of his parents. He, he, he could sympathize with those who have lost a parent. You remember that his father Joseph married Mary when they were young. But by the time Jesus is an adult male, Joseph is gone from the scene in the Bible. Nothing more is said of his earthly father, just of his mother. Apparently Joseph has died. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that when Jesus dies on a cross, he has the responsibility of caring for his elderly mother. And so he turns to his friend John and to his mother and Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold your mother. He provides in the, in the greatest hour of his distress, He makes sure that his elderly mother is provided for by somebody. He he understands what it is to lose a parent, to care for aging parents. He can sympathize with you. He can sympathize with those who work for a living. As best we can assume, he he grew up as a carpenter in his father's house. Undoubtedly worked with his hands in his father's shop made things, sold things, labored for daily wages, and dealt with clients and suppliers, undoubtedly some of whom were uh, unsavory. He, He knows what it is to need his daily bread and work hard to get it. He can sympathize with you, and he can sympathize with those who grieve. He knew the loss of his dear friend Lazarus, and he wept at the grave of his dear friend. He shared the grief of his family when his own cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered. He shared in that as a real human being. So he can, friends, he can sympathize with those who suffer. He felt afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest and execution. 
He, prepared, he was preparing himself to face Almighty God in the perfection of God's holiness and receive justice and judgment for our sin. And he wept, it says, great drops of blood. He suffered cruelty at the hands of his own creatures. They mocked him, they spat in his face, they pulled his hair, they blistered his back, they stripped him naked, they hammered nails into his wrists and into his feet, and they shoved a spear into his side, and they killed him. And in the end, he was abandoned by so many in his deepest time of pain. So I say that to say this to all of us, whatever pain, sorrow, loss, weakness, sense of abandonment or abuse at the hands of wicked men, whatever it is, the Lord Jesus can sympathize with you. He has been in your shoes. He gets you. And there is a reason for hope in that. And there's a reason for joy. It's not, friends, the uh, armchair theologian who just simply read the Bible and spouts truth at you in your pain to comfort you that is of greatest comfort. But it is when a friend comes along, sits beside you, walks through that pain with you, and can say to you, I have been through this myself. So there's great joy, friends, in Christ. And in his humanity, because he can sympathize. And finally, friends, there's a reason for joy in Christ's sin-bearing. The angel declared, what about this baby? 10 and 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God's strategy to save men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language group across the world is the birth of a baby and the man he will become. And if Jesus had not been a man, he could not die in our place on our behalf because it is humanity that sinned, you and me. And humanity must pay the penalty for the crime. And so Jesus must be human to be a true substitute and sin bearer for us. And he was. And this is entirely different from everything else you will hear in any other place. There's no religion that teaches this kind of salvation, friends. When you boil it down as you read of of the great world religions and philosophies throughout history, it, it basically amounts to this. It's a dangerous world. It's a troubled world. We're troubled people in some way. And God is a righteous God if God even exists. But let me give you some good advice. Be good, and hopefully it'll work out for you when you face that God, whoever he is. Be good, do your best, try hard, take your pilgrimage, visit the holy places, give your income and money to the poor, do things that are good to secure for yourself your right standing with God. And Christianity says, you know what, you know what God did? God sent a son into the world. He sent a baby boy. And that's his strategy for salvation. That's what he did. And what is our part in that story, friends? It is to stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. 
It, it's not to contribute anything to our own salvation, but it is to see that salvation has been provided in Jesus. And God gives all good things to those who are in his son by simple faith, by believing in him, trusting in him. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, it's not we who make a pilgrimage, friends. It is God who makes a pilgrimage, the greatest there has ever been, stooping down out of, time, out of eternity in heaven and become visible in a particular time and place for us. For us. So the message of the Bible is don't, don't try to just be good, shape up, and Santa will give you presents instead of coal in your stocking because you were good and not bad. That is not the message of the gospel. But Jesus is good. He was good for you. And Jesus has died, and he has died for you. Simply rest in him. And do you then find yourself saying, I think I can agree with that. I know that's what the Bible teaches, but I feel way too unworthy to be offered that kind of gift. Then this Savior is for you. I mean, consider the first people God chose to announce this to as we close. Who was it that got the message? It was shepherds. And these are not the pleasant people you see depicted in sentimental Christmas cards, friends. These are dirty, smelly, exhausted, on the lowest end of the totem pole of society. Shepherds aren't elite. They're not liked by regular people. They were outcasts in society. Partly, partly because they were constantly ceremonially unclean. If they were a Jew, they were always unclean, being around dead animals and all these sorts of things. So they couldn't go to the temple to worship like most regular people. But also partly because they were notorious as a group. They were notorious for taking what wasn't theirs. Stealing other sheep, pasturing their flocks on other people's land. And so law courts in that day found them to be unreliable and they forbade their testimony in court. They were the lowest of the low, poor, outcast, frowned on, distrusted, considered unreliable. And these are the people that God chooses to announce good news of great joy to. Because nobody is unworthy unless you say all of us are unworthy, which we are. But God delights to save sinners. And since it came to the humble, the only thing standing in the way of the elite being saved is their pride. God says, friends, the good news is great joy because this shepherd's God is our God. Find your joy this Christmas in God's sovereign reliability and in Christ's sympathy and in Christ's sin-bearing for your salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you for the gift of your son. We pray that he would draw many to himself. In Jesus' name, amen.